Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In October, Theology on Tap will be hosting an event called Is White Supremacy a Real Problem in America? Everyone is very nervous about it. Are we finally opening a can of worms so big and so ugly that we can't possibly deal with what may come? In even asking the question, we have been accused of ourselves already being white supremacists. And in looking for uh, panelists and speakers for the event, we have gotten all kinds of advice. The first advice was, are you crazy? Do not host that event. The second was, if you host it, be sure to have equal representation between white people and people of color. The third was, if you have the event, be sure to have it be an all-white event. And in, and in between, there has been a lot of say this, don't say that kinds of advice. But I pushed for this topic, and it was my idea, and the exact wording of the topic was my idea as well, precisely because we do need to talk about these sorts of things. And if Christians who share a belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ can't do it, then who can? And really, the, the whole point is to observe and try to understand the, the way this very phrase, white supremacy, has been really redefined and used in recent years in new ways. Because I don't think we have any idea how to deal with that as a nation. One thing is for sure, because we're certainly not in any way wanting to suggest that white supremacy is okay. We want to suggest that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the solution to all hatred and all racism. And we want to be her, uh, we want to hear and speak the freeing grace that is given to us in Christ to forgive sins and to be forgiven so that the cycles of hate are broken and that we refuse to let uh, past historic grievous sins be some kind of guidebook for the future so if it is the case that white supremacy is the greatest threat to our nation, which our own nation's attorney general has said, well, then we need a whole lot more gospel. So we better be talking about these sorts of things. Well, why am I talking about that today? Well, because a root problem in our culture today is legalism. Legalism. And I think this is a good example of it. Now, I'm not saying that like white supremacy, as I grew up understanding it, is a good example of legalism, but rather the way that term has been redefined. What is legalism? Well, legalism is a hyper-obedience to the small things of the law, but an ignorance of the big things of the law. Exactly what Jesus is dealing with, with the Pharisees and the scribes, the leaders of the Jews, that's why Mark says they came from Jerusalem, the leaders, that is what we're dealing with. And so this issue of white supremacy, it's one of many relatively new arguments to our ears that are these calls for justice, but they include no grace. There is no balance 
of our need to be observant to the law with the realization that we are not and cannot be perfect. Not to say that, you know, Nazism or something is just imperfect. It's gross and evil. The accusation now, though, is that there is this new standard of justice that is perfection, and if you don't mean it, there's no grace. There is now, in many quarters, only the demand of perfection, with the stakes being raised so incredibly high with this provocative language. That's why we all whisper at the mention of something like white supremacy. Even when we met as a leadership team to talk about the event, we'd get to that phrase and we'd whisper. We're in a room with four other people, right? It's extreme language. We don't even want to think about it. But legalism is the issue in our text this morning. Not only the gospel, but James is dealing with it as well, right? He's dealing with Christians who believe they're saved so they don't have to observe the law. He's saying no to understand the fullness of life in Christ. We must be doers of the law. But in the context of the gospel, Jesus is dealing with this battle between the right observance of the law of God and this thing called the traditions of the elders. Did you notice that phrase? Well, what is that? Well, a little background. Jesus is ministering during a time called Second Temple Judaism. It's what we call it now. They didn't call it then, but we call it now. The first temple, if you'll recall, was destroyed when Israel became too weak and idolatrous a nation to hold together and to defend itself. So it divided, which made it easy pickings for the Babylonians, for example, who came in, destroyed the temple in 586 B.C. or 587, and whisked many of the Israelites off into exile, into Babylon. And so uh, when these Israelites are given the opportunity to return to their native land about 90 years after that exile, they are determined they're not going to make that same mistake again. They are not going to fall into idolatry this time. They're able to rebuild the second temple, the you know, remains of which are still in Jerusalem to this day. And other groups in this time, the intertestamental period between sort of Old and New Testament, there are these groups that arise, right? Scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, the Essenes. These are all different groups committed to hyper-obedience to the law of God. And so the Old Testament ends up being riddled with stories of idolatry, right? The prophets are always talking to Israelites about not falling away from the true God, not worshiping false gods, not going to the high places, right, where shrines were offered to false gods. But the New Testament, that's not what's going on. The New Testament, Jesus is always dealing with legalism, an improper understanding of obedience to the law. Therefore, Jesus is arguing not about biblical, Levitical law, which was still in effect in that day, but the traditions of the elders, laws that had been offered over and above the biblical law so that the biblical law wouldn't be broken. Therefore, this is a text about the ceremonial washings, right, where Mark is explaining to the reader these people had added layers of washing that the Bible doesn't command. Got to wash your hands, got to wash your feet, got to wash the pots and the pans and the bronze vessels, got to wash the food when you get it from the market. These are not biblical commands, right? They're adding to it. 
And this was very serious. It was so serious that there is a a story of a rabbi who accidentally, we think, forgot to wash right once, and he was removed from his position and from the fellowship. So this was no small thing to the people. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you know, we need a little grace here. Now, he's not saying that obedience to God's law is optional. We know that Jesus didn't believe that. Remember, he raises the stakes uh, of obedience to God's moral law. He says, if you have adultery with someone in your heart, you've committed adultery with them, right? And so Jesus realizes that this is an abuse of the law, an abuse of the law, which will never foster peace, which will only bring about division. Does that sound familiar? Right? And will only end with one person pointing their finger at someone else. What was lacking among the Pharisees was any sense of grace. It was their standard of, or, or, or it was lawlessness. There was no in-between. They had become masters of disobeying God's law while appearing to be virtuous. And again, I'm not saying that real sins of something as horrible as racism are just to be swept under the rug in the name of grace. No, that is a sin which requires repentance. The question of our day uh, is uh, really how we define those terms and how those definitions have changed in the last even few years. And as our nation turns away from God's law and enshrines man's law with our newfound standards of justice which seem to change every day, we will find ourselves increasingly at a loss for what kind of obedience is required. Do you find yourself saying something and then someone else say, oh, you can't say that. Right? How quickly is that happening now, right? Because the laws and standards are always changing. Now, maybe you have noticed this. Some people call this, there's a name for it, anarcho, as in anarchy, anarcho-tyranny. Anarcho-tyranny, it's an interesting phrase. It basically means that you get in trouble for all these little things, but big laws go uh, ignored. If you don't know that phrase, I suspect that you've lived it, right? It describes the, the constant meddling by our rulers and our betters through small laws while massive injustices are actually ignored. A few months ago, I flew to Ohio for an NALC candidacy committee meeting. And see, I, I kind of was under the impression the airports weren't really concerned about how, how much liquid you had in your carry-on bag anymore. No, my toothpaste had too much liquid in it. So bye-bye to my toothpaste. It was thrown away forever and I had to buy toothpaste when I landed. Uh, but meanwhile, right, in San Francisco, while it remains a misdemeanor to shoplift, it is a well-known fact that shoplifting is rarely, if ever, prosecuted. Shop owners are not only terrified of defending themselves against thieves, Thieves have even taken shop owners to court for racial profiling. An example of the real-world effect of this, 17 Walgreens stores in the past few years have closed in San Francisco because more product was stolen than sold. So there are 17 fewer pharmacies for the poor and elderly uh, to get prescription medicine near their home. 
Here's an example from a 1994 article that describes the same phenomenon. In North Carolina in 1994, a man was pulled over and ticketed for not wearing his seatbelt. And none other than the governor of North Carolina was there to hand him his ticket. Why? Was the governor a part-time state trooper? No, it was a photo op to talk about a new law that had been passed where you would be fined $25 for not wearing your seatbelt. At that same time in North Carolina, real criminals were being paroled and let out of prison at record rates. The same thing is going on today with changes to bail laws, etc., etc. And so you see the small crimes by mostly law-abiding people are actually much easier to prosecute than large crimes uh, committed by skilled criminals. And what is the result of all that? Because I'm arguing that is a kind of legalism, right? The result becomes a society in which those who break small rules feel unjustly punished, while horrible crimes go unanswered. It's almost like if the crime is big enough, we stop caring about it. But the small things we can police, like what pronouns somebody wants or what have you, oh, we're, we're right on top of that. That is a recipe for unrest. And it is the kind of perversion of justice that Jesus is addressing. The beauty of our Christian faith is that it calls for this amazing combination, uh, the, the perfect a combination, I think, to create a just and fair society. Lawfulness, not lawlessness, lawfulness, obedience, and peacemaking. We are to be good citizens and just rulers. We are people who believe in the law up and down the line. We are also sinners who have been redeemed, so we know the depths of our own depravity. And therefore, we know of our need for grace, and we extend that grace for others. That is the balance of appreciating the law of God, but there being grace as well, and not drifting into legalism. So we reject legalism, or hyper-obedience to any and every law, no matter how small, no matter how traditional, while finding ways to skirt and maneuver around God's moral law. We seek to understand how God would have us live, and then we live that way. We reject constant blaming and nitpicking of small sins or past sins while ignoring present big sins. If you wonder why we seem to be at each other's throat so often these days, I believe it is this rampant increase in legalism not among a bunch of Christians, but in our society around these new man-made laws that change every day. Oh, and social media pointing it out all the time doesn't help. Every day new rules spring up, and every day responses to new definitions of gender or equity or fairness or justice or microaggressions. Don't say this, do say that. Back to my example. Have these people on the panel. Don't have these people on the panel. These people are invited. These people are not invited. How about a little grace? Would the world be a better place with a little grace? 
You can trademark that and put it on a bumper sticker if you want. When Jesus says that it is not what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles, he was offering grace if they were listening. It's not the small laws that cleanse you, but rather it is having a clean heart. And to be clear, a clean heart has no room for any kind of racism, to be clear. But rather, we seek clean hearts For it is out, Jesus says elsewhere, it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Christians believe you can have a clean heart. I don't think the modern day uh, uh, advocates of these new laws believe that. But Christians do. A clean heart can really be yours. There can be forgiveness. It has actually been won for you at the cross by the crucified Christ. So let us work against never-ending legalistic retribution and instead work toward clean hearts and forgiveness, which will bring about great peace for all. Amen. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I recently rewatched one of my favorite movies, a movie thought to be exciting in its day, but by today's standards would be terribly boring, <clears throat> per my children, practically an obscure thought piece that ponders the meaning of life. There's not a single space laser in the whole film, but it is the Chariots of Fire. Uh, it tells the mostly true story of two runners who are preparing for the 1924 Paris Olympics, racing for the United Kingdom. One of those runners was a future uh, missionary to China from Scotland called the Flying Scotsman, Eric Liddell. He would, spoiler alert, win the gold medal in the 400 meters after he refused to race in his best race, the 100 meters, because that race was scheduled for a Sunday. The other was H.M. Abrams, a Jewish student from Cambridge who had to fight for respectability in a deeply Christian environment. There are many wonderful themes of the film, which is why it works so well. One of them is vocation. That's something us Lutherans like to talk about a lot, vocation, or the doctrine that you can serve God in any station in which you find yourself. There is perhaps no better example of this doctrine of vocation than Eric Liddell, who loved to run because he says in the script that when he was running, he felt God's pleasure. He had to defend, you see, his love of running and the time spent in training for this competition because his sister thought he ought not to be engaging in such foolishness. Don't you know there is missionary work for us to do in China, and here you all waste, you're wasting all of your time running. And he would, in fact, go on to be a missionary who died in a, basically a prisoner of war camp at the end of World War II in 1945. But he believed that being a proud Christian and a famous runner at the same time, could and would bring glory and honor to God. 
But another theme in this film is what Liddell calls muscular Christianity. Muscular Christianity. He wants to be known as a Christian who can unapologetically engage in the material world. He seems driven to sort of normalize or defend Christianity as something more than an old lady's faith. Nothing against old ladies, of course. But he wants to put down any rumor that a man must fully not be a man if he is a proud Christian. Indeed, there are in our own day many debates about the death of muscularity in modern Christianity, as it often runs in fear from anything that would look strong or proud or even, dare I say, patriarchal. No Christianity in many an evangelical church today should only be known, it is said, by its kindness or tolerance or pacifism. I'm certain that we have lost some members in the past precisely because I don't totally follow that line of thought. Try as I might, and I did look, I could not find the inspiration for this phrase that is inserted into the script that is put into Eric Liddell's mouth, muscular Christianity. Was there some research that the screenwriter found that inspired him to put those words in Liddell's mouth? Was there some issue in the church of 1920s uh, Britain uh, that, that, that inspired Liddell to be a forerunner, pun intended, in this new movement? Had Christianity become so weak uh, that even though it had all of these deeply felt traditional mores in the society, uh, it still w was weak. It was in need of male or strong heroes. Or had Christianity, as I suspect, and as could be said about our own day, become so commonplace, too commonplace, so assumed that it had lost its grit, its teeth, its power, its strength, and it had become unable or unwilling to speak truth to power for fear of losing its highly regarded place in the world. Or maybe 1920s Christianity in England was totally fine, but in the 1980s the screenwriter was worried about it, so he was using this as a vehicle to make a commentary about that. Who knows, unless the screenwriter left a book somewhere outlining every theme of this movie, I guess we'll never know. But that line stuck out to me as I watched it again. It's been a number of years since I watched that movie, and, you know, I've changed uh, since I watched it many years ago, so certain things in film sort of jump out at you. And that line sort of jumped out at me. And notice that the line is not this longing for a masculine Christianity, but rather a muscular Christianity. Because women, you see, have muscles too. Indeed, the spiritual muscles of this Syro-Phoenician woman have reverberated for centuries. And what is her strongest feature as she stands there going toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus, begging for healing of a demon for her daughter? Is it her wit? Is it her willingness to engage in rhetoric with Jesus? 
Is it her determination to fight for her daughter? Well, all of those, no doubt, are signs of great strength. But I think she is most muscular, if you will, in her willingness, her humility to be called a dog and just own it. That really stands out. She does not claim to be a victim. She does not start whining to Jesus' disciples or his boss. She does not shrink back in fear. She stands her ground, which includes accepting what Jesus says about her and not letting her sensitivity get in the way of her mission. Now, much ink has been spilled through the centuries on whether Jesus was, in fact, a jerk for calling her a dog. You have probably heard some of the alternate or contextual theories about this. For example, uh, he didn't use the Greek word for dog, uh, which would indicate some kind of rabid stray, mongrel or something, but more of a pet, right? A, a friend in the household. Okay. Uh, or it's said that Jesus is purposefully engaging in this witty repartee. He is engaging in kind rhetoric with a wink and a nod, teeing her up, inviting her to make a retort to her. Fine. Duly noted. But if someone called me a dog, even in the vein of my beloved Gus or Hank, I think I'd be a little, uh, you know, offended and maybe tempted to fight back. Probably especially if I was a woman who is really being put into my place by a man. But this woman can take it. She doesn't even argue the point. Me, a dog, is that the best you've got? What, a loser wasn't available half-breed, degenerate, stupid, ignorant, hopeless woman didn't want to roll off the tongue? Sure, I'm a dog. I don't care. Heal my daughter. What makes her muscular, you see, was that in her commitment to heal her daughter, she would take whatever flack she had to to get Jesus to exercise his power to heal her daughter. And not only did she receive the phrase, she turns it to her favor. And thus, she disarms Jesus, if in fact he meant it as some insult, which I don't think he did. But if he did, she totally disarms his insult. And she puts herself under the table with the dogs to receive the scraps. Now, if you know of a tougher person, I'd like to meet them. Now, I'm not saying that she's engaging in warfare. She wasn't under enemy fire. I get that. But she had to fight for her daughter, and she had to engage with Jesus, which, given the reputation that preceded him, right, would have been pretty substantial. And her grit is in stark contrast to the spirituality of our own day, which promises you everything and asks for nothing. You are said to be a good person. Your emotions and your experience are how you know what is true. Seek the truth within. If it feels good, do it. Sunday fun day, etc., 
etc. In Christianity, in the name of peace, in the name of meekness and obedience, even in the name of Jesus himself, well, we have gotten in this habit of withdrawing from society. When we are told not to gather, we say, okay. When we are told we can't pray in school, we say, okay. When Christians are mocked, we offer little defense. When God's law is said to be old and outdated and useless, we are not even informed enough to argue otherwise. Or when Christianity is only presented as mild and kind, do we agree? Or do we think that Christianity can make demands too? Strength begins by admitting that we are weak. That's one of the reasons we confess our sins every morning before we gather. This woman is called a dog, and she doesn't even bat an eye. She agrees. She welcomes Jesus' crumbs, and she moves on with life with a healed daughter. We do the same if we mean it when we say that we are in bondage to sin. We cannot free ourselves, and we have sinned against God and others. You see, you are a dog. I'm a dog, too. It's okay. We reject the useless lies of the New Age movement, for example, that would have us believe that we're not dogs, but gods. The joke is on them and all of those peddlers of false hope. For while we may be dogs, we have a master willing to give us crumbs from the table, and that is more than enough. We don't need to be gods. We don't even need to be good, because Jesus is good, and Jesus is God. When we know that Jesus is good enough, that his death on the cross, that his resurrection from the dead is sufficient for all, then we can dare to be strong. And when we have the humility to be okay not being God and knowing that we only need his crumbs, then we will really be strong, muscular even. Amen.